0: Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of June 23rd, Attitude Adjustments. I'm your host, Dan Kreider, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss three important adjustments to our view on financial markets in the past couple weeks and what they may mean for the near-term path of credit spreads. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.kreter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, At BMO.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Well, Dan, the theme of our podcast today is adjustments. And I think the first one that we have to talk about is the adjustment to Fed rhetoric that was revealed last week in their FOMC meeting, where they delivered a bit more hawkishness than I think we or the market was expecting. Get us caught up on how financial markets have responded in the week since the FOMC meeting.
2: Yeah, so the primary reaction was a significant volatility in the Treasury market. We saw a flattening of the fives, thirties Treasury curve last week by more than it had flattened in any week in about 10 years. Equities have held in fairly well. We saw a bit of a downtrade at the end of last week, but a quick rebound in early trading this week, and equities remain near their all time highs. then credit spreads have not really reacted very much at all. They opened today about one basis point narrower than they were before the Fed's meeting last week, and just a couple of basis points off of cyclical tights. And I think that just goes to show that there is significant risk to this inflation outlook, but it's really early on in the process. And we're nowhere near the point yet where we can conclusively say that the Fed is behind the curve on inflation right now.
0: You're a bit more generous than I am describing the equity market performances last week as holding in relatively well. I think it was the worst week in stocks since October, but I, I hear you on the recovery on Monday. For me, I think the main takeaway we talked about in our podcast last week, we talked about our main takeaways from the FOMC meeting. And I think our bottom line was really that the Fed sort of surprised us by implying a potentially weaker hold on inflation. Than they had in previous meetings, using terms like inflation could be higher and more persistent than we thought, things of that nature. And so I agree with you from a high level that what we really took away from the Fed meeting last week was that there is downside in risk assets if ultimately this Goldilocks path that we've been harping on for the past few weeks ultimately doesn't hold. I mean, the power flattening the treasury curve, that makes sense if the market interpreted the FOMC meeting the way we did, that the Fed implied a bit of a weaker hold and then that implies that the Fed would have to then move quicker or more forcefully in the future, which should flatten the curve. And that's what we saw. This week's been a bit of an undoing of that, because to your point, things are still too early to say. We saw Powell in front of the Senate yesterday was a bit more dovish, and we've seen a recovery in equity markets, at least. Credit spreads in bond markets haven't really moved. So I think the market's reaction that you talked about, it all makes sense if the market has sort of digested the Fed the way we did, that Inflation is really going to be at center stage. We still don't really know. And so the neutral reaction in credit may be not very surprising. But when you fit that into our view, we've been very consistent since March with this neutral view we've had on credit. Has that changed at all for you in the wake of the Fed meeting and the market's reaction since?
2: No, it hasn't really changed. But I think it's just strengthened what we've highlighted here and in our written work for a long time, which is that the risk-reward profile for credit right now is looking a little bit stretched. Well, we could envision a scenario pretty easily where spreads move 15, 20 basis points wider, it's hard to see a similar magnitude of outperformance in credit right now. And given Powell's admitted uncertainty with respect to the inflation outlook, that just presents another risk and, like you said, another possible derailment from this Goldilocks path of recovery.
0: And so looking at it from a timeline perspective, we've held a neutral view expecting to maybe see a bit of a backup in spreads that we view as a buying opportunity at some time in the summer months. And I think, to your point, that view didn't change from the Fed, but I think it has been strengthened. You look forward to the July-August time period when economic data is going to theoretically start becoming more relevant. We've seen unemployment numbers sort of stay on that Goldilocks path. We'll wait for the next print. Inflation has been high, but that's been expected. Now we're going to find out if it's transitory. So in July and August, you have more meaningful economic data, which has to be viewed as a threat to the Goldilocks assumption right now. And you have a seasonally difficult time for credit spreads. You know, if you look at seasonal fluctuations of credit spreads, there's usually very little seasonality that can be observed. And that would make sense. Obviously, the majority of time, credit spreads are trading off the macro narrative, which doesn't endure over multiple years. But one of the few pockets of the year where you can see significant seasonality is in mid Q3, you know, late July and into August, where you see some weakness in credit spreads, and I think that that's for a couple of reasons, the most important of which is the expectation for heavy supply. Obviously, supply comes back in the fall after a summer lull. And you have some investors looking forward to that supply, maybe being able to put cash to work in the primary market instead. And then you also have just the reduced liquidity of the summer months, You know, dealer inventories maybe getting stale, spreads backing up a little bit. So there is a pretty observable seasonal trend there in mid Q3, which is going to intersect kind of perfectly with economic data starting to matter more. And so with that perfect intersection, I think you could see a buying opportunity. And the final piece of the puzzle for me, and in keeping with our theme on adjustments, is how narrow credit spreads are. We all know that spreads have moved to post-financial crisis lows here in the past couple of weeks. But if you look pre-crisis, there are periods of time where spreads were at least optically narrower. But you did some work, Dan, on adjusting the credit index for compositional changes that may alter the view on where credit is right now. What did you find?
2: Yeah, so basically the IG index is significantly different today than it was when it was first established in 1997. And there's two primary structural changes that have happened in the index that we looked at. The first is the duration. So when the index was first established in 1997, and here I'm talking about the ICE-BAML index, but qualitatively, the same trends have emerged in any IG index that you're looking at. But the ICE-BAML index had a duration of about five and a half or six years in the late 90s when the index was established. It's about eight and a quarter now. So that's good for about a 35 or 40% increase in duration. And then the second has been a very often talked about topic, and that's the deterioration in credit quality. And specifically, we're talking about the so-called triple B problem. So back in 1997, the index was about 27% triple Bs. It's 52% triple Bs now. It was 5% triple A's in 1997. That's down to 1% now. And then double A's made up 18% of the index in 97 That's down to 8% today. So we've seen a massive deterioration in the credit quality of the index, and we've also seen an extension of the duration. Now, both of those factors are not explicitly controlled for by the index, but they should both lead to wider spreads, all else equal. And that's because when you think about the duration, Treasury OAS curves are typically upward sloping. So all else equal, a three-year corporate bond, will trade at a tighter spread than a 30-year corporate bond. But the index today has more 30 year corporate bonds than it does three year corporate bonds. The same is obviously true for credit quality. A triple B corporate is going to trade generally at a wider spread than a single A corporate, which will trade at a wider spread than a double A. So, in order to sort of normalize for these qualities, we decomposed the index and then reconstructed it. Using constant characteristics that were applicable in 1997. So we used the credit composition of 1997, the 27% of triple Bs, and we applied those weights to the IG index over time and saw what the resulting spread would be. We did a similar thing for duration. We assumed that the index duration stayed at the five and a half or six years that was applicable in 1997 and extrapolated that going forward to see what spreads would be today if the index composition had been constant over the past 25 or so years. And the bottom line is that we found that if the index had not deteriorated, both in a credit and duration sense, that spreads would be about 36 basis points lower today. In other words, this deterioration has been worth 36 basis points. And had it not occurred, we would see spreads more in the realm of about low 50s basis points in the ICE BAML index relative to the 87 basis points they set at today.
0: Okay. So that's obviously a fairly large adjustment. Now, I'm curious in that low 50 basis point on the index, how does that compare today versus other periods in history? Are we now way lower than it has been in the past? Are we at all time lows? How does that stack up historically?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, Dan. So the next narrowest we see these adjusted spreads came in early 2018. And that's actually the last time that spreads on a raw basis we're trading near current levels. So the adjusted spread index that we've created Traded about mid 60s in 2018. And then just before COVID, the adjusted index got pretty close to that too, touching just under 70 basis points. And then before the crisis, we saw the index around mid 70s. So, you know, today's spreads of low 50 basis points, call it 52, 53, that is the lowest that we have on record by a good 13 or so basis points, with 2018 being the next closest to current levels.
0: And I think that's an extremely important takeaway, is if you just look at the spread compensation investors are willing to accept for credit at this point, you can make an argument it's at all-time lows. And so when you look at credit from that perspective, and you think about the intersection in the summer months we talked about between deteriorating seasonality and more meaningful economic data, it just seems like- at least in the near term, there's not a lot of potential for spreads to keep falling. In fact, you said it earlier, Dan, I think there's a much higher chance to see spreads 15 wider than 15 narrower in the next three months. But I also want to highlight another important takeaway from that analysis you did. You know, you talk about spreads being at all-time lows, but you could also make an argument that that makes sense, given the central bank actions in the past 20 years to put a stronger and stronger backstop behind credit, ultimately culminating in the 2020 cycle with the Fed explicitly purchasing corporate securities for the first time. And we've discussed this notion in previous episodes, just that credit spread should be fundamentally narrower given this Fed backstop. But when you adjust the index for its compositional changes, you really see that start to play out a lot more dramatically. You know, if you just look at absolute spreads on a chart going back 20 years, it looks like spreads sort of hit the same local lows around current levels. You know, Low 80s, at times reaching into the high 70s, going back pre-crisis. But they've sort of bottomed out in that 75 to 80 basis point range a number of times. But when you make those adjustments, that floor that's on credit spreads actually starts to tilt. And you can see a pretty clearly observable downward trend in credit really since the beginning of the century. And for that reason, I think that that trend will continue as the backstop has strengthened, particularly during the pandemic. We should get used to seeing spreads. At historically low levels. And for that reason, actually, I think there's considerable downward pressure, even at all time lows, from current spread levels. I just don't think the environment is there to support it yet. And if that's true, then we have to be looking at any spread widening that does come in the summer months as a buying opportunity, and especially with the expectation that buying opportunities will likely get less frequent and less substantial in future years if we are truly headed for a transitory inflation environment with low yields and low spreads and a reach for yield being the sort of prevailing environment like we saw following the financial crisis.
2: Yeah. And then it's worth pointing out that the Fed has tried to talk back this idea of some implicit backstop for credit. And that's probably one of the reasons that they've decided to sell their corporate bond portfolio. But we've talked about this in recent podcasts that we don't think that if a similar situation were to arise again in the future, that the Fed would hesitate to install a similar program to the corporate credit facilities.
0: Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. So Dan, anything more to add on credit here, or should we move on to our third adjustment? I
2: think we can move on.
0: Okay. well, the third adjustment in our adjustments theme today is actually the technical adjustment that the Fed delivered to the short end last week. We've now had a week of data since then to see how financial markets have reacted, and just wanted to talk a bit about that and lay out our expectations for the short end going forward. So we saw the technical adjustment five basis points higher on IOER and RRP, and as expected, We have seen SOFR print at five basis points since then, so a four basis point increase on SOFR. Similarly, Fed funds has traded four higher from six basis points to 10 now. And I guess it's important to note here that, as we expected in our episode last week, there has not only not been a decline in take up at the RRP, in fact, RRP volumes have gone up, and they're now approaching $800 So that really shouldn't come as a surprise. It's difficult to see why there was any expectation that the hike would drive away in volume at the RRP. But I think the most notable thing, at least for us, is that if you look at some of the more credit-sensitive rates, both Bisbee and LIBOR, the increase at the short end, at least thus far, hasn't been as meaningful. Even today, after LIBOR's biggest jump of the year, a massive 1.3 basis point jump, we've only seen a total widening for both Bisbee and LIBOR of like two and a half, maybe a little more than that, two and a half basis points since the Fed meeting. So obviously, Given the moves in SOFR, we've seen a bit of a narrowing between LIBOR SOFR or Bisbee SOFR, which should obviously be a narrower for front-end spreads. And that's what we've seen. This is one of the reasons why we were favoring the steepener on the swap spread curve. It's difficult at this point in time to really like swap spreads going in either direction, higher or lower, just given the very ample reserve environment we're in and the still massive oversupply of cash compared to collateral at the short end. Now the question becomes for me, now that we've seen the technical adjustment, what becomes the view now? So let's break that down into a few individual questions that we can try to answer. So first, do we expect there to be another technical adjustment, Dan, or do you think this will probably be it?
2: No, I don't think there will be another technical adjustment. I think it's possible that over the next month or so, maybe the next five weeks leading up to the debt ceiling deadline, we continue to see some downward pressure on front-end rates. But I do think that the RRP presents a pretty effective floor on Fed funds. And so I don't expect to see Fed funds move from 10 currently back down to six or five basis points in the near term.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. And you bring up the debt ceiling, which is unfortunately going to be a major driver of short-end dynamics, I think, going forward. The Treasury cash balance is still pretty elevated. I mean, it jumps around a lot day to day. So it's difficult to say where we are on any given day. It dipped below 600, I think, and then back above 700. But bottom lining it there, we still have a lot of Treasury cash that's going to be paid down in the course of the next month plus ahead of the deadline. And then if we don't get a timely resolution to the debt ceiling in August, which I think is a pretty high probability outcome given the composition of Congress at the moment, We could see debt ceiling dynamics drag on for a few months until ultimately Congress has to deliver a a more durable solution. So I just can't see any change to the oversupply of cash at the short end of the near term. Can you?
2: No, I think it'll have to wait until August, frankly. I don't see any catalyst for these massive trends to be reversed anytime in the near term. Like you said, Treasury cash balance is likely to continue to come down, and then bill supply shouldn't really turn significantly positive for the foreseeable future either.
0: And so then looking at the short end rate complex as a whole, you can really make two arguments. The one being you expect the adjustment at the front end to continue playing out in LIBOR, Bisby, and you see those credit-sensitive benchmarks continue to back up, reflecting the simply higher short end complex, you know, basically the argument here being that Bisby and LIBOR have just lagged, and they're ultimately going to fully move four or five basis points higher like SOFR and Fed Funds has. Or you can make the argument that those will stay narrow, and that the technical adjustment just sort of mechanically forced that narrowing to happen more quickly. But the oversupply of cash at the short end is going to continue to result in downward pressure on LIBOR and Bisby, and then ultimately potentially further downward pressure on at least short end swap spreads. So for me, and I hate to bring it back up again, but the driving factor is going to be the SLR. Like we're going to get an SLR ruling at some point in the near future. I'm a little surprised it's taken this long, but it's going to come. And once you get that SLR certainty, It's going to impact the short rate complex in a few important ways. The most straightforward and the one we've talked about most is that it should just give a green light to banks holding treasuries in the belly of the curve where their holdings are most natural, and so you could see some widening of belly spreads there. But I want to talk about another factor that is potentially not as often discussed, and that's the impact of SLR on LIBOR. Because as we've seen in the past few months, commercial paper outstanding has reached post-crisis highs. And that's been driven almost entirely by financials. I think non financials commercial paper is flat or maybe even lower. It's been a massive increase in financial commercial paper. And when you think about it from an SLR standpoint, that makes sense.
2: Yeah. With banks sort of waiting out this uncertainty on SLR, the way to fund yourself in the short term that makes most sense is to do it in the CP market. Because as you mentioned, those rates are very low. you look at LIBOR, look at Bisby, and also that paper matures within several months. So there's not necessarily going to be a refinancing needed to be done once this SLR certainty pops up.
0: Yeah, what you're saying is commercial paper gives you more flexibility when you don't know exactly what's going to happen from an SLR standpoint. And I agree with that completely. And so if you think about once we get the SLR rule from the Fed, commercial paper outstanding would then most likely fall and potentially fall precipitously. Well, then if you have a big decline in commercial paper outstanding, all that money that's currently invested there is going to be chasing a lower supply of unsecured funding products. And in that lens, you could see LIBOR and Bisby then continue to narrow and potentially even push spot LIBOR-fed funds to like zero basis points, or it wouldn't even shock me to see negative in the spot market. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's really hard to like wider short-end swap spreads at the moment, just given the debt ceiling, our expectation for cash to remain high, and the potential impact that SLR could have on the supply of commercial paper. So even though we've seen the swap spread to perform, I think we're five basis points in on the money since we implemented that view. It's still the view that I prefer. I still think that's the place to be on swap spreads, at least until we get a final SLR rule and there's a bit more clarity and we can reassess what's going to happen potentially ahead of a move wider across the curve later in the year, but I just don't see it for now.
2: Yeah, Dan, I completely agree with that. And before we wrap up, just a quick note, given our neutral view on credit I think technicals are likely to play an outsized role in the market over the next few weeks before we get more uncertainty on the inflation picture later on this year. And so the technical outlook for the second half of the year, and specifically the third quarter, is something that we're going to be focused on both in our written weekly on Friday and then next week's episode of the podcast.
0: So please look out for that, and we'll be back next week.
2: Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macro horizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of, or reliance on, this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com macrohorizons legal.